Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our second podcast on legal issues in the post-COVID world. My name is Gil Porter, a partner at Haynes & Boone and chair of our COVID-19 task force. These podcasts are designed to present to you, our friends and clients across our many offices, a quick overview of some of the more interesting and important legal issues and developments over the past week. Our podcast series is intended to share insights into what topics are keeping corporate counsel up at night and the resources available to help them sleep a little bit better. Those of you familiar with our website will know that we have updates posted on our website at haynesboon.com. That's H-A-Y-N-E-S-B-O-O-N-E.com. Expanding on the content of these podcasts, we invite you to review and search those materials at your leisure. Our topic today, legal developments in working remotely. Our ability to work remotely during this COVID crisis is certainly enabled by the technology available to us. There are issues and solutions that are being addressed legally as well. We will discuss two of those. I will be one of our panelists on this occasion. Nathan Koppel, our Director of Media Relations, will continue his role as moderator of this podcast series and will introduce our other panelists. But first, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. Moreover, by its very nature, the topics we discuss in these podcasts will be fast-moving and subject to change. Therefore, legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Ed, let me pass it on to our moderator, Nathan. Thanks, Gil. I appreciate it. Uh, Today is Thursday, April the 9th, and I guess we're almost a month now into this pandemic. I'm going to turn it back to you, Gil, in a second. Gil is going to be joined by Alex Grishman who, like Gil, is a finance partner in our New York office. And they're going to discuss one of the issues that businesses face in a work-from-home world, and that's the validity of electronic signatures, which, for obvious reasons, are growing in popularity. I'm sure many of us have used e-signatures from time to time, but a key question remains, are e-signatures, in fact, legally effective and binding? Alex, I'm going to turn it over to you, if you could, to give us an uh, overview of the applicable law governing e-signatures. Thank you, Nathan. The fact of e-signatures has been around for a while. You know, they they come in many different formats. For a long time, for most of my career, we've had PDF signatures, which are wet signatures that are then scanned into a computer and emailed around. And we have these distance closings, which were an evolution before I started practicing law, but have been common since, you know, the mid-2000s. And so in this coronavirus pandemic situation that we're in, we have taken this to the next level where now we have signatories at their homes spread out across America and even around the world, signing documents and trying to figure out a way to have them effectively executed. So when you look at the law that governs these electronically signed documents in the United States, we look at on the state level, the Uniform Electronic Transactions Act or the UETA, which was published by the Uniform Law Commission and then has been adopted around the United States, luckily by 47 states. There are a few outliers, including uh, the state of New York, which has enacted its own legislation on electronic signatures. But the practical effect of that is generally the same, with some exceptions to uh, the UETA. And right after the UETA was enacted or has been adopted around the country, the federal government, just to add a little bit more complexity, but also formality, 
and uniformity to it, enacted the United States Electronic Signatures in Global and National Commerce Act, it's a great name, called the eSign Act, and that came around in 2000. And the, the intent of that, like I said, was to provide for, you know, uniformity around the country. And what's great about the intersection between these two laws, you have state laws and federal laws, is that in most instances, the federal law will govern to the extent and will preempt the state laws to the extent there is a conflict. But generally, the two acts on a practical level, E-Sign, uh, which is the federal law in the UETA, generally accomplish the same things and have the same rules. So when we're looking at the electronically signed documents, both on the PDF side, through DocuSign, through the, some of the other companies that do this, those are the two laws that we're looking at. Did you say there are some exceptions to that, or is that generally the, the law of the land across the country? That is generally, those two statutes are generally the law of the land. In New York, like I said, we luckily, for us New York lawyers, have our own electronic statute that governs electronic signatures that has made it even more uh, favorable for us, more effective for us to have electronic signatures go through. Yeah, everyone in New York knows uh, when you're taking the bar exam, there's a rule for every state and then there's a rule for New York State. So, Alex, as I understand your description of those federal laws, it sounds like e-signatures are by and large binding and, and valid. Is that correct? Yes, e-signatures generally can be effective and binding. However, the process by which the e-signature is done and obtained is the key to making sure that they are enforceable and binding. And when I say the process, I don't just mean the act of obtaining the signature. I mean also when you are the lawyer representing either side in the commercial exchange, you have to go through the that process of looking at where that signatory is sitting at that time. What law is governing the documents that are being signed? If someone is signing for a legal entity, what is the governing law of that legal entity's jurisdiction of formation? So you have to go through the process to make sure that you're going through all the different hoops that are required to make sure that the e-signature will then be enforceable. In addition, there are some types of contracts, and we can talk about this in, you know, a little bit later, that still require wet signatures or actual pen to paper that will be required. Can you describe some of the different types of e-signature processes? Sure, I mean, for the different processes you know, of e-signature, we have, you know, DocuSign is a very popular one, uh, and Adobe Sign, you know, and, and Sign Now, and there's other. These we call, we refer to these as electronic signature platforms. Each one of them has a process inside of them that, that allows you to send a document, if you are the person who is in control of it, to the signatory, alerting them to where they have to sign. The person then receives it on their email that is attached to their signature account that they have built on that platform. The person then attaches through a number of different ways on each different you know, kind of platform, their signature to that document, it becomes a unified signature block and then gets sent back out, signed with their signature that has now created a record of them effectively signing the document. That is you know, generally how these different platforms work. Gil, I'm going to turn it over to you. Are there other issues or steps parties need to consider to make sure that an e-signature is valid? I think Alex has gone to a very important one, which is you need to know who you're dealing with and where they are. For instance, if you're signing on behalf of a company, the company might have a policy. 
hopefully it favors e-signatures, but it might prohibit it. So you need to be uh, checking those things as well as jurisdictional questions. You also have a couple of best practices we like to recommend. For instance, if you're dealing with somebody in a company capacity, don't allow yourself to use email addresses that are independent of the company. Use a company email address for everything. Have that show up in the records. If you start getting a Gmail address, Yahoo, those are wonderful, but that doesn't substantiate that you got the right person. Uh, make sure you've got backup emails with people confirming that they are actually confirming a discussion of the documents so that there's no surprise when it comes through the process. And then finally, do keep track whether you're dealing with the kind of a document where an e-signature really is appropriate. We've teased about the things you don't want to do through e-signatures and just want to quickly mention them. And let me first say this varies a lot. So I'm going to give you the things where you stop and say, okay, I need to do some more thinking. One of them is, of course, if you're filing your this signed document with a government agency. Lots of government agencies allow e-signatures, but some of them are pretty fussy. How they want it, do they want a PDF? Maybe they want their own platform. Maybe they'll take a DocuSign or an Adobe sign or something like that. You need to check that. Mortgages, deeds for real estate, anything that involves recording a real estate interest, you need to check. And my favorite way of checking that is usually you're gonna be dealing with a title company. Go right to the title company, ask them what they require. They may be more conservative, at the end of the day you want that title policy, so <laughs> go with what they suggest. Negotiable instruments. Technically, most of the laws allow negotiable instruments like a promissory note and the like to be signed electronically. But, you know, if you do it electronically, the simple truth is people are going to be able to print out copies. That's not really something you want with a promissory note that's transferable to somebody else. Uh, there's a reason why, for instance, ESRA, the New York law, actually has specific rules about the kind of situation where you can do e-signatures of promissory notes. I'd say those are the general guidelines. Ah, big one, testamentary, wills, estates, beneficiaries, benefit plans. All of those typically require wedding signatures. And I think a simple rule of thumb would be if it's, gonna, if it's something where someone says it has to be notarized, it's probably not right for an e-signature. Thanks, Gil. With that mention of, of notaries, I'm going to turn it over to the next issue that companies face as they continue to do deals and sign contracts and engage in other transactions in our remote work universe. The challenge here is the requirement that documents must be notarized in person, meaning that the person signing the document usually does so in the presence of a notary public who then attests to having witnessed the signature. Now that obviously poses challenges in our situation these days. And I'm gonna uh, invite Ellen Conley to talk to us about how to deal with notary rules in our remote work universe. Ellen is a associate in our Houston office and she's a member of our energy, power and natural resources practice group. She recently wrote an article about notarizations, which I, I love the title of this. It's keep calm and notary on how to meet your notary needs in Texas while social distancing. Ellen, how can companies navigate the in-person notary rules at a time when most people are confined to their homes? Right, thanks Nathan. So historically, this would have been very problematic and still remains somewhat problematic in many states, but historically states have required in-person notarizations wherein a signatory would be required to sign a document in person before a notary who would then acknowledge that same document that the signatory had just been signed. 
thankfully, I believe we're around 23 states today, um, have established remote online notarization, which is really key for the type of situation we're in now, which would solve the problem of having a signatory in one house and a notary in another. So allowing for a signatory to sign and a notary to acknowledge a document while in different locations, but still connected by a real-time audio video link. And so this is particularly important for us in finance right now, you know, working from home, we need to be able to have documents such as mortgages signed and acknowledged before they can be recorded in the public record. What is the general framework of these remote online notarization laws, including in Texas where you practice? So the legal framework really stems and is similar to the framework that's provided for the authorization of electronic signatures that we just discussed. And so it's generally composed of a variety of federal and state laws, which will include the Federal Sign Act, the Uniform Electronic Transactions Act, and then other specific statutes adopted in some states that authorize electronic notarization, and then also recognizing the validity of notarial acts performed under and in compliance with the law of other states. So having these rules taken together provides the general legal validity of electronic notarization, and then also recognizes the validity of notarial acts performed in compliance with the laws of other jurisdictions. Ellen, thanks for that. Can you describe the process for how these remote notarizations work, just the mechanics of it? Sure. The process is supposed to feel like a traditional notary proceeding in a sense except that the signatory will appear to a notary via an interactive two-way audio-video conference. So the remote online notarization laws and regulations can vary by state. So for example, in Texas, it's required that only approved remote notary software platforms be used because they've been deemed reliable and secure. So I know that, for example, our online notaries in our Houston office use DocVerify. There are a couple of other platforms that are available, but it helps conduct these remote online notarizations and provides for an approved method of not only video conferencing, but to electronically execute the document. And so just to provide kind of a step-by-step how this works is we would set up an appointment essentially with an authorized notary who would provide the remote online notarization. And the unsigned document that will be signed and acknowledged would then be uploaded in an electronic format to the remote notary software platform. And then there's a very strict identity screening that takes place prior to even logging on to the audiovisual network. And it varies by state, but it can include answering questions based on the signatory's personal and credit history, verifying the signatory's identification documents online, or the notary can remotely view the signature's ID during the notarization. Ellen, I understand that yesterday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a press release regarding notary requirements. What does that cover? So it covers a few things, and it's interesting that you say it is a press release. It's not an executive order, so unsure what that entails. But the press release did reference that traditional notaries 
so not specifically commissioned as online notaries, would be allowed to notarize remotely certain documents, um, which include a self-proved will, a durable power of attorney, a medical power of attorney, a directive to physician, or an oath of an executor, administrator, or guardian. And it was implemented in an effort to provide some flexibility in the notarization process for these specific documents during COVID-19. The press release specifically states that the notary will verify the identity of a signatory um, using two-way video and audio conference technology. And so it's not specifically limited to an approved remote notary software platform. So notaries and signatories can use Zoom or FaceTime or some sort of other video and audio conference for this specific type of notarization. Um, and then the notary, the identification procedure is much more relaxed. Um, the notary can either verify the identity of the person by personal knowledge or the signatory can just show a government-issued identification, such as a passport or a driver's license, while conducting, while signing the document in the video presence of the notary. And the ID just has to have both the signature and a photograph of the person signing. These sort of suspended notary requirements are in effect until either terminated by the Office of the Governor or until the March 13th disaster declaration is lifted or expires. Um, one important thing to note is that this limitation or restriction on notary requirements is limited to those specifically referenced documents and would not cover any other type of document that would require a notary. Gil, I am gonna give you the last word tonight. Anything you wanna add? Well, thank you, Nathan, and thank you to the panelists. Uh, it's wonderful to know that these procedures are in place to help us through and they're just complicated enough that I think we're going to enjoy doing it live as soon as we can. Uh, thank you all for listening to our COVID-19 series. Please do look for additional releases of our podcast and also for our weekly energy tracker series. As a reminder, you can find our podcast and other content at hanesboom.com. And feel free to reach out to me or to Nathan Koppel if you have any suggestions for further podcast topics. Our podcasts are available on many of the popular platforms, including Apple, Stitcher, and others. Take care all, and good night.